Let me let me entertain you. Please don't. I mean, what? <laughs> Back to the bin. I was at a New York Comic Con yesterday and today. I am so freaking tired. Oh, I can imagine. You look yeah. pretty tired in those pictures. The pictures that I'm in there were from yesterday. I don't think I was in any of the pictures today. So I was tired then, and then I did a whole other day of it. So now I'm really tired. Yeah. Did you get a press pass? Yeah. Ah, oh, you suck. Nice. Well, you'd, you'd, you'd rather I spent money? No, 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 no. The yeah, yeah. Comic Con wouldn't give me a press pass. Well, because you don't have my kind of credentials, man. Let's <laughs> don't don't be comparing your your background and your resume to mine. Ah, I see. Well, you, you sing a silly song every now and again, and you think you get a press pass for that? I'm putting I quality should, out here, baby. Should man, I'm laying myself on the line every day with these songs. Got to tell my wife, hey, I'm okay. I'm just gonna be singing in the garage, so you don't need to come out and like stare at me and laugh or anything. <laughs> Think about like in the 1950s or the 40s, even they said, you know, like the comedian was nothing. The straight man was the guy who always earned more money and he was more considered more valuable. And you are clearly the Lou Costello to my Bud Abbott. <laughs> hey, Bud. Hey, lady. That's no. Hey, uh, well, you know what? He, as long as it's not me, he can be Jerry Lewis. That's fine. I'm like Dean Martin. I love Jerry Lewis. That's good because I don't. Mr. Telethons. Many years I would try to stay up and stay up all night to watch that. No, nah, I don't think I ever did it. I'll be Dean Martin. I got no problem with that. As long as I'm not having to be Jerry Lewis. Somebody. Sometimes. Yeah, but you can't sing. I'm the singer, baby. You are. In in. Kind of a weird Al Yankovic kind of way. Hey, he's he sings. Hey man, I tried on that song last night. It took me six takes to do that, and that was the best one. I kept screwing up. No, that that's not bad at all, actually. I I, I criticize because I can, but it <laughs> just doesn't mean that, that it's accurate. <laughs> I prowl the rooftops and alleyways at night, searching for justice, blind justice. A guardian devil. <coughs> no, 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 that's not actually true. I'm not Daredevil, blind attorney by day and fearless crime fighter by night. No, I am J. David Weeder, a podcaster, but you can call me Dave. I do read about Daredevil and his adventures, and I podcast about it on my show, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. You see, it's it's my Daredevil. You get it, you get it. Every Sunday, I read a Daredevil comic and share my thoughts and feelings on the issue, the characters, and the world of Marvel's Man Without Fear in an easily accessible audio form. And I want to take you along for the ride, so tune in each week as we meet Daredevil, his villains, his loves, and more hornhead goodness than you can shake a billy club at. That is every Sunday on iTunes and at www.daredevilpodcast.com. That is daredevilpodcast.com. Take the dare. Listen to Dave's Daredevil Podcast. Did I really just say take the dare? Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins, uh, episode 123. I'm special guest Dave Atterbury, and with me, as always, is Paul Spataro, Hello. and Dr. Bill Robinson. And a meaty man thing to you. <laughs> good evening, good sirs. Good evening to you, Dave. I, I think I'm going to let you off the hook now because I feel like I'm like you're say, okay. saying, all right, when are you taking over? <laughs> yeah, Dave's uh, joining us because once again, Scott is out. Still searching for that pristine copy of Captain Canuck. So Dave was good enough to join us, which we really appreciate. And today's episode will be airing sometime around Halloween. And we thought with three such manly gentlemen recording that uh, we should do a horror-based show. And what would be better with the three of us than Giant Size Man-Thing? I thought that was fitting. So we're doing Giant Size Man Thing number one, which has four stories in it. So 
We're going to go over all four of them. But first, we have some email. What the hell is email? It's email ringing time. Dr. Just, Bill, you want to read the first one or you want me? We have an email from Russell Bragg, uh, titled Back to the Bins, number 121. Hello, guys, and a hearty la, la to you all. I could have sworn that I had written to this show before, but I haven't heard you read it. It might have been Comics Monthly Monday. I remember it had to do with the Lone Ranger. Anyway, Back to the Bins 121, Bill's cat, was hilarious. You guys cracked me up from start to finish. You kept me very happy at work, and that makes my long days go a little faster. Did you review any books? Oh, yeah, X-Men and the Brute. All of my X-Men knowledge comes from either the cartoons or the movies. So anytime you guys talk about the X-Men, it's new to me. As for Brute, I used to get his set of colognes every Christmas from friends while in college. Maybe they were trying to tell me something. (laughs) At least they didn't slam you against the wall like the Brute did. While I'm at it, I truly enjoyed your On the Road series recorded from Disney. My mom always wanted to take my brother and me when we were kids, but we never got there. I'd still love to go as a 45-year-old man. Hopefully my wife and I can get there someday. If for no other reason, I'd love to meet Scott Gardner. Eh, trust me, it's it's kind of overrated. Uh, my, wife, <laughs> my wife and I both love to walk, and I'd love to see how much we could take. Every place you went sounded awesome. Maybe, some, maybe someday. Better close for now. Keep up the good work. P.S. Fang was on the Adams Family. He, she was Pugsley's pet jaguar. See, that I didn't remember. Mm. And it's signed Russell Bragg from Clarksburg, West Virginia. Thank you for the email, Russell. I appreciate it. I'm glad you enjoyed our uh, Bill's Cat episode because, honestly, I was a little concerned that we went a little too over the top on that one. But, like I said, we definitely enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, yes, it was. Um, I, I don't know if we mentioned it in the last one uh, or if I mentioned it. Not... I'm not sure, but I think I told you that might have been in a private conversation about how much we actually walked that day because I had my work phone on and it had a pedometer on it and we had walked 9.7 miles that day. At least I did. But you guys probably walked a full 10 or more because I left about an hour before you guys did. So, yeah, 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 yes, definitely a lot of walking there, Russell. And thank you again, Russell. We really appreciate it. And I have asked on a couple of occasions I, I appreciate the emails i like the emails but i've asked for uh, itunes reviews i have yet to see the yeah paul is great bill is okay and, and any of those itunes reviews so come on guys i would I'm do it, it but it, come on on it. it i think it would kind of stand out as being a little prejudice if i do it scott doesn't even get a mention is, is scott still on the show i don't know scott who Ooh, burned <laughs> <laughs> See if he listens to this and hears that. Then maybe he'll come back on. <laughs> like a giggling schoolgirls. All right, before we go too far with this, <laughs> let's take a break and uh, put in a promo. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime. I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Lost. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series or issue or character or whatever to talk about, and then I, well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, The Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. 
The show is located at www.fusefromalongbox.com. And from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Longbox. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. And we're back. So, Giant Size Man Thing. Giant Size Man Thing. Should I uh, hop on in on this one, guys? If you want to hop in on that Giant Size Man Thing, you go right ahead, Dave. Dave feels oh, has, well, Dave well, feels that he has the right to the giant sized man thing. <laughs> that's that's what you're saying. Is that am I getting that right? It's my giant sized man thing. <clears throat> Sixty-eight big pages of fun. <laughs> Good thing this isn't a video podcast. <laughs> <laughs> or is it? Uh, all right. So giant sized man thing number one. Uh, cover date uh, August 1974. I was negative two years old. Shut up. Sorry. <laughs> you were like I was like 30 then. Positive 30. <laughs> I was five. Paul, are you my father? <laughs> hey, you never know. Now, if if, if I, you said you were negative two then. Oh, yeah? Okay, yeah. I still would have been pretty young to be... Uh, I'm not quite old enough to be a dad. All right. Maybe your young uncle. Young uncle. I'll, I'll work. Yeah, I'll take that. I'll take that. Because I got some weird uncles, so... <laughs> so I'd fit right in. <clears throat> yeah, exactly. All right, we have uh, Steve Gerber as our writer. We have Mike Klug as our artist. Uh, Frank Chiramonte is our inker. John Costanza, letterer. Petra Goldberg is the colorist. Roy Thomas... The editor. Our tale for tonight is entitled How Will We Keep Warm When the Last Flame Dies? Uh, as our story begins, we find Man Thing alone, silent, hidden among the shifting shadows of the swamp. He comes across an altercation between two scientists, Paul Benton and Professor Marshall, and the robe and hooded figures of the cult of entropy. The scientists, representing the Omega environmental systems, uh, are searching the swamp for renewable energy sources. The cult believes their work will only prolong the agony of man and that entropy is the destiny of the universe. The cult members have brought more than just words to stop the two scientists. They produce an iron strap chest containing a golden brain. The lieutenant of the cultists, a car, whips out the golden brain and holds it aloft in a glass sphere, rendering the two scientists speechless and the man-thing doubled over in excruciating pain. Something... <laughs> Thank you, Scott. Something about that throbbing, pulsating mass of cerebral tissue wreaks havoc upon his empathic nature, a sense of terrible evil. The Man-Thing is driven to attack the cult members, but they have been warned of this possibility. So a car uses the Golden Brain to summon forth a golden demon to do battle with our hero. As the cultists drop to their knees chanting exaltations, the two titans wage battle one with another, each electrical blow from the demon causing terrible pain to Man-Thing as our hero's attacks seem ineffectual against the power of the golden monster. In desperation, the Man-Thing uproots a nearby tree and impales the demon, disrupting its electron flow. The demon explodes, causing feedback which shatters the glass sphere containing the golden brain, which then bounces its way boink, 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 down a nearby hill and into the swamp and into a pile of quicksand. As the cultists lament this turn of events, the two scientists decide this is a great time to get the hell out of there, as, as uh, does our hero, <clears throat> which leads us uh, into chapter two of our tale, This Mind, This Universe. 
Uh, we, as the brain sinks to the bottom of the swamp, we see a flashback and learn that the golden brain once belonged to a man named Joe Timms, and uh, who was a tough kid from a tough block who got too tough once too often. He landed in prison and died trying to escape and became a creature known as the Glob. Uh, a creature strong enough to battle the Incredible Hulk, which story is told in Hulk number 121 and 129. Their final confrontation resulted in a fall from a high-tension tower in Miami that caused the glob to explode into a thousand bits. Somehow, we're not told how, this his brain survived and... We now come back to the swamp. The, the golden brain wills itself to the surface of the quicksand and uh, hops out of the water where it causes the warm clay underneath to rise up and form a new body for itself. Uh, as the story describes, it's Joe Timms as sculpted by Michelangelo. Having no memories of any of his previous lives, uh, this being enters the swamp as we flash back to Miami we find the cultists have returned to their headquarters and are reporting to their master Yagzan who is most displeased with their failure at the swamp Richard Nixon <clears throat> I mean Yagzan disposes, uh, dispatches a car for allowing the scientists to escape and report the existence of the cult Yagzan informs his followers that they shall be calling upon the two hapless scientists as we move into Chapter 3, uh, No Shortage of Evil. Uh, in the swamp, uh, Benton and Marshall have put, built the city of the future, a collection of solar-powered geodesic domes that is self-sufficient and does not disturb the swamp's ecological balance. As a local reporter allows the scientists a few panels to give us a lecture on corporate greed and the dangers of the cult of entropy, he also introduces Joe, the mysterious man that they have found in the swamp. He has been taken in and has become the first resident of Omegaville. That night, Yagzan and his hooded band return to the swamp to burn the remains of their slain colleague. Then, using Nixon, I mean Yagzan's <clears throat> psychic link to the Golden Brain, they find their way to Omegaville. Yagzan there takes control of Joe and tries to de-evolve him back into the form of the Golden Brain. However, his psychic power is spent and once again Joe Timms has been turned into the creature known as the Glob. At Yagzan's command, the Glob begins to lay waste to the domes of Omegaville. Man-Thing rushes into the defense, and again we witness a terrible battle of the fearsome titans of the swamp. Man-Thing lays into the glob, each blow more terrible than the last, until he slams both claw-like hands into the body of the glob and literally tears him apart from the inside out. Yagzen then attempts to reform the clay form of the glob, but is himself engulfed by the rapidly hardening clay and is suffocated. And as we finish our tale, we see the Man-Thing silently slogging away uh, to resume his endless despairing. And that is the end of our tale. Stop. I can't breathe. You're suffocating me. Get down. I command you, Haru. Pray with me. <laughs> So, uh, yeah, three chapters, uh, a lot of reading there, a lot of exposition, uh, and uh, my first thoughts are I, I really liked it. Uh, it was um, a really good read, and uh, I liked the fact that there was quite a lot of exposition in this. Um, <clears throat> as a, a comics noob, so to speak, um, I'm just starting to get into to reading comics, and uh, I, I like a comic like this that takes me a while to read as opposed to some of the newer comics I have uh, read in the time it takes me to um, sit on the toilet per se. <laughs> yes. So, uh, so I, I really like this, you know, it was, 
Um, I like the art, and I like uh, I liked the, the the story, and it reminded me a lot of um, just kind of classic sci-fi '70s-ness. You know, it had that feel to it that I that I dig because it's you know what I grew up on. So Big creature battles. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can almost picture you know, especially with the artwork as it is, you can almost picture that battle blow for blow. In, in a movie or something, you know, or an animated feature or something, and uh, it would really play very well. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me a lot of, uh, uh, just because of the similarities, it, it made me think of the Swamp Thing movie, um, which I haven't seen since I was a kid in the 80s, so that's probably why. I... Oh, yeah. Louis Verdun, Adrian Barbeau, Adrian Barbeau's oh, yeah. friends. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Those were fun. Puberty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, uh, you hit a good point, though, Dave. Like, you know, we talk about expository dialogue as if it's uh, an evil, and it really isn't. I mean, it, it serves a, a huge purpose in these stories because these stories are far more compressed than what's coming out now, and they need to be, you know, yeah. with, with some expository language. Otherwise, you're not going to follow the whole story because there's so much that happens so quickly. Yeah. Uh, in, in most respects, I like that i like that they move along the, the stories and you feel like it's jam-packed full of stuff but I, in this one i almost felt like they could have done a lot more with joe working at that uh at the what you call it the uh at a co- the collective and and yeah. how you know how basically nixon i mean uh, yaskin you know converted him into the glob and and you know killed the role that he was serving there and how he was kind of regaining his humanity and and that he was forced out of it. I, I think that you know there was some storytelling to be done there. Yeah, they could. It definitely could have been expanded a little bit from where it was at. For sure. You know, this is a whatever it is a fifty-something page uh, comic. The the entire yeah. book could have been or sixty-eight big pages. The entire book could have been this one story instead of having uh, three reprints after it. Uh, yeah, I totally agree with that. I totally agree with that. Yeah, and I like that. Uh, what you're saying about the expository dialogue because I think um, one of the things I like about it is, is um, even though I like the art you know I mean um, you know it, it, it does leave something to be desired in, in a few instances but uh, I like that the, the dialogue to me makes up sometimes for that lack in art by creating mood in, in the written word as opposed to just the art yeah, and, and you got to keep in mind, too, that Man-Thing is an incredibly hard character to write because he really doesn't have much in the way of personality. He doesn't speak. No, no. Although now, in, in the current uh, continuity, now he has developed the ability to speak. Hmm. That's but, interesting. But, but at least at this time, he didn't. He was more like the point-of-view character, and then the story would be going on around him. Yeah. But I, I always like Steve Gerber's ability to, to tell creepy Halloween type tales, and Mike Plug, who's the artist in this, definitely had a creepy style. He was, you know, he was well suited to the horror stories. He did this, he did Ghost Rider, he did Werewolf by Night, uh, and and he was, you know, he he set the mood, the creepy mood with his artwork. But if you notice it, there seems to be a stark difference between his artwork in the interior and his artwork on the cover. I don't know if that comes mm. down to inking or if it was a conscious effort by his part to to make the cover art a little bit cleaner and a little bit less creepy and and moody. Yeah, I definitely see what you're talking about there. It's there's uh it's a little yeah, it's a little cleaner, a little little less uh detailed than yeah, the interiors. Do do tend to stand out more on on that cover, you know, like the really small details from the mushrooms at the bottom to the guys in the boat back back behind him mm-hmm. yeah because everything is much more clear when you get inside though it's now it could be the fact that you know the paper's kind of yellowed and um, yeah a little bit it also could be that the in the interior art you know frank chiramonte is credited as an anchor on the cover it's just signed by plug so he probably inked his own work so it might that might be the difference right there yeah that's a good point paul and uh I had another point, but it died in my brain. 
I have to I have to give credit for the Nixon reference to Bill last time we recorded. Uh, he pointed out the uncanny similarity between uh, our main bad guy Yagzan and uh, and our former president Tricky Dick. So uh, Nixon. Yeah, Nixon. <laughs> uh, things that were hilarious. I like uh, on page seventeen uh, the uh, the cultist headquarters. I forgot to mention it in the uh, in the recap. Is in downtown Miami in a high rise hotel. Which they which they proceeded to then fill with, uh, you know, fire burning braziers and and stone altars and 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 thrones with skulls and quite a long sword. Yeah, the the cleaning ladies just love working in the uh, headquarters of the cult of entropy. So 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 Nixon kills uh, Akaar, who. doesn't quite want to go to. Two yeah, does does isn't quite as as married to the entropy idea when it's his own life being coming to an end, uh, oh. but but you know he he basically slices him in half with this uh, scimitar, yeah. And then in the next shot, you see uh, you see he's he's got his uh, his robe over his hand and he's basically I guess wiping the blade clean. <laughs> yeah, pretty gruesome actually. Uh, They're all the, looking uh, at the floor. Somebody better call maintenance. That's a mess. Yeah, really. You got to think that's going to leave a, a little bit of a puddle. <laughs> that yeah. carpet is ruined, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I did uh, know time uh, with the second transformation of the glob. He's that more grayer glob. Mm-hmm. You guys remember the cavity creeps from the old Crest commercials? Yes. You make holes yeah. in teeth. He looks like a cavity creep. To he me. does. Yeah, especially in that bottom panel on page twenty-seven, where he uh, starts smashing the dome. Yeah, he looks. I also like that he did it as a callback to a character that had been in the Hulk. I guess at this point it would probably be about three or four years earlier, rather than just come up with a brand new, you know, brand new swamp creature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which would have been you know very easy to do with the uh, bouncing telekinetic brain. Yeah. Yeah, there doesn't seem to be anything off the table, so they definitely could have uh, just come up with a random monster rather than tie it back. I, I, I particularly like when the brain you know, uses its telekinetic power to come out of the swamp uh, on the page where that's happening. Mm-hmm. The third panel, which is the one that runs across the entire page, it almost looks like it's flexing its muscles to kind of crawl along the ground. Yeah. <laughs> the brain muscles. Yeah, it's it, it's it's bouncing its way past a, a large lizard. It's a uh, it's kind Ooh. of a unintentionally funny shot there. Yeah, that that brain looks yummy. <laughs> just <laughs> lizard comes over, just takes a bite, and that's it. Uh, I thought it was hilarious that, that we find it out in the flashback that uh, that the glob used to be a man named Joe Timms, and and when he 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 finds his way to Omegaville, uh, naked and without any memories. They they decide to give him the random name of Joe. Uh, mm. So I thought that was kind of hilarious. Uh, yeah, I hadn't even somehow, noticed that. Yeah, they pulled the name Joe out of a hat, which just happened to actually be his name. So I thought that was kind of a kind of some hilarious writing there. We call him Joe because <laughs> his name is Joe. <laughs> Uh, and the final fight was pretty. It's a lot more dramatic than the first fight between the two. This one seems to have a little more detail. Maybe it's because the the glob doesn't look like a giant pile of movable golden straw. Which is yeah. The first time here, he's all gloppy, and every time the man thing hits him, there's chunks of him flying off. And then, like like you said at the end, he just basically, I guess, puts his fists inside him, and just tears him apart from the inside out. Oh yeah, yeah. There's some great panels there. I mean, the, you literally see the glob ripping the top of his head off in one shot, and, and uh, just giving him a wallop. It's it's pretty good stuff. Um, and he also left himself an opening, you know, when when the clay comes and it hardens over Yazgan, uh, and you could always have him somehow, you know, lightning hits it and it gets rejuvenated, and now it's an, another glob. So it would, yeah. it would have been very easy for him to write a sequel to it if he chose to. Glob 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so a little little not-so-subtle commentary, I think, going on there between our, our two scientists. 
who uh, are, are Woodward and Bernstein's here, and our uh, our, our uh, Richard Nixon, the cult leader here. Mm. Uh, <laughs> These guys' names? They're not Woodward and Bernstein, are they? <laughs> <laughs> Might as well have been. Yeah, I believe it was uh, oh, Benton guys, Marshall. Yeah, guys, reporters. So there, there you go. Yeah, exactly. So, but yeah, it was all. I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it a lot. So I'll definitely be trying to uh, to seek out some more uh, stuff from this uh, time period and start reading them. Yeah, this. I mean, this. This is my era of books. This is when you know I was. At this point, I would have been uh, almost twelve. So mm-hmm. I was. I was totally into this stuff as it was coming out. I bought this one off the stands. Nice. All right, are we ready to move on to story number two? Sounds good. Yes. Dr. Bill, you are our story number two guy. Story number two. I, is, that a, is that a crack at my cat? <laughs> if, if, if I were clever enough, it would have been, but no. <laughs> All right, our second story for tonight in Giant Size Man Thing is The Ice Monster Cometh. Some call him the Abominable Snowman. Some call him the legendary ice monster. Some call him Maurice. <laughs> because he speaks with the crunch of love. The pompatus of love. I know, but I you know, I don't think the ice mon- the ice monster speaks with pompatus. I think he does. I think well, he would call you George and he would love you. I think that's what that well I guess we'll have to see what happens at the end of the story. Okay. Oh. This story is brought to us by Stan Lee with art by Steve Ditko. And uh, we have a menacing picture uh, on the first page of a Yeti-like creature with Michael Phelps' arms that are like the same length of his body. Gratuitous butt shot. Gratuitous hairy butt shot. And uh, he's menacing a little teeny, 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 tiny group of villagers way in the background as he's uh, tromping through a, a nice darkened Bavarian village. So, we open the story with uh, a recipe for a fantastic tale. There was a gem collector who was accosted during the night and some jewels were stolen. And then later the next day in the little village, all the people are wondering, you know, who could have committed such a crime? Ah, perhaps it was the legendary ice monster, which what would a ice monster do with jewels? But that's okay. That's okay. We'll just deal with the silly Bavarian superstitions. And just um, put on your lederhosen and shut up. Yeah, it was the ice monster. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we run, right? Yeah. Yeah, I was running. Yeah. Did you do? Are you going to the festival? No, the ice monster cometh. No. <laughs> but there is one villager who does not believe in the ice monster, and. uh... That appears to be the local magistrate, and he believes that it is Hugo Bob, who he knows in his in his own mind that he's the man that has stolen the jewels, and he will find the proof he needs to nail him to the wall sooner or later. And, and Hugo tells him, yeah, "You searched me, searched my home, and found nothing. I am far too clever for you, Inspector. I don't know where you have hidden the jewels, but you will never make—they will never make you rich." We shall follow you at every hour that you remain in this village. Really? Too bad, Inspector, for I do not intend to remain here. Good day. So, years later, Hugo decides to return to the village because he has heard the inspectors died. Only, he goes to where he had hidden the gems, buried under a tree, and that the whole area has been built up with new homes. So now he's trying to figure out, how can I get to these gems? You know... Why do they have to build another village in these woods? This sucks. Oh, woe is me. So we have a nice little suspicious Bavarian woman shuffling her children off, you know, warning them about the the ice monster. And um, he still can't believe that the the villagers still believe in that. And he decides, aha, that's how I'm going to use their fear of the ice monster to help me get the jewels that I buried years ago. So next shot, obviously, maybe he went to Costumes R Us, or he's just one hell of a seamstress. And he makes himself a giant Yeti, you know, furry white ice monster creature outfit. 
and he stands up on the highest, uh, like a local little mountaintop over the village. And uh, instead of getting out their guns and shooting them like they should, um, the villagers run and hide and are scared witless by a man in a big furry suit. So, run, run, save yourselves. Get out of town, hurry. He's coming, the ice monster. Oh, God, we're going to die. There they go, they're fools. Soon the buried gems will be mine for the taking. And he starts beating on the doors, making sure, you know, everybody's not going to come out. That way he can get back to, to the hiding place. And he's going over to where they were hidden. And you can see they've got a nice close-up shot where you can see his eyes through through the costume. And he's like, ha-ha, <laughs> nothing. Nobody's out here. I can do this. But we as the reader see a rather large claw, a furry white claw, behind Mr. Bog as he is going to his hiding place. And um, he hears a noise and he turns and he sees, oh, no. There really is an ice monster. And, uh, of course, the ice monster. Uh, I left. After all these years, I have found another of my kind. Someone to keep me company. Never again shall I be lonely. Never again shall I prowl. Where humans dwell. For fate has sent you to me. And we shall be inseparable. And I will call you George. No, no. And so we take our leave of Hugo Bog. As the howling mountain winds drown out his slowly fading shouts. No. Help me! Somebody help me! Perhaps in time, Hugo will find the help he craves, but until then, he was doing one worthwhile thing in his otherwise worthless life. He is now the sex slave. I mean, he is keeping someone company. <laughs> Too bad for Hugo that it happens to be the wrong someone. The end. Lenny the Ice Monster. <laughs> I pet him and hug him and call him George. Gosh, it's hard. Uh, I love this so- this story. I mean, what is it? Six pages long? Seven pages long? But yeah, I mean, it's a quick story. It's your Great typical, stuff. you know, Marvel late fifty, I guess early sixties. Uh, you yeah. know, just just before they came out with the actual superhero books, uh, you know, Twilight Zone type story. Yeah, uh, and this was originally presented in Amazing Adventures eleven. I forgot to mention that, and we had a long discussion about that last time. Yeah, so still couldn't figure it out then. So we're not sure what date that came out. We know it's not the later Amazing or Amazing Adventures line. So we saw. We tried. We tried. We couldn't find it. I I I like the Ditko art in this. I think it fits the story. But I really love the close up of uh, <laughs> the guy's face. But basically, and and I think the thing that that I, that I realize now is. It almost appears he has no nose, which makes him look Muppet-like to me. Oh, well, yeah. He's, massive, he's got a massive forehead that overhangs his eye sockets. His eyes are sunken back at his face. He's got no nose. Yeah, and then, yeah, and then he's got this, his hand like out toward His hand looks like two times too big. I mean, it's really a weird per, perspective shot that you're looking at in there. I mean, that guy carries that cigarette everywhere. It's in, like, almost every scene that he's not dressed as the ice monster. He's smoking in the inspector's office. He's waving it around in the next panel. He's probably putting it away in the next one. And then he's, you know. <laughs> he should have been walking around town smoking a cigarette. No, that's that's the days when everybody smoked all the time. Mm. You got to keep that in mind too. If, if you if you ever watch Mad Men, which takes place in the '60s, it's amazing. Like they show them smoking everywhere they go. Yeah. And you uh-huh. know everybody's sitting there, and you you know that was back, you know when you could smoke in, at work, you could smoke in restaurants. All gone now. Poor smoking people. Well, Work, I ran into a lady today. I also I just love all the people wearing you know lederhosen and uh, oh yeah 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 we must run <laughs> yeah they're run. don't forget the hosen we need a hosen <laughs> yeah all you need is a you know a little umpapa band <laughs> don't see anywhere though I also the, like uh, the uh, the close up of the uh, the real ice monster where he looks like the salt monster from Star Trek mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I love, I love the end of this because it just reminds me of the end of Trading Places. So, 
Yeah, that's right. We talked about that before. He says, hey, isn't there one monkey in there before? Ah, look at that. Leave him alone. (laughs) 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 That's a good little story. We have four stories, so let's see. There's one, two, three of us. Bill, you do another one. Okay, sounds good. I'll do. Uh, uh, I'm not going to sing this one. I sang. I sung it last time, and it just fell totally flat. <laughs> we all remember that. I no, I don't remember. You don't remember when I was trying to do to, to, uh, to the what? tune of the invisible. I was trying to do the innocent man, Billy Joel. Oh yeah, oh yeah, that did fall flat. Yeah, and everybody, you're not missing anything. Yeah. Sorry, Bill. Okay, no problem. <laughs> okay, next, uh, the next story we have is called I Was the Invisible Man, and this was originally presented in Strange Tales Annual Number 2, and I would assume it was written by Stan Lee, although it does not say so, uh, but the art was by Jack Kirby, and we have a scene to where a blur of a man is running by three individuals, two of which appear to be crooks, and they have just taken a payroll from the First National Bank. And this human blur has snatched the um, payroll away from them. And we next cut to Adam Clayton, who is graduating uh, his last day at college, is saying good farewell to his professor, to Professor Howard. This is a sad day for me, Adam. You were my star pupil. I'm sorry to see you leave. I am too, sir. I've gained much knowledge from i've gained much from your knowledge of science and you must use that knowledge for the benefit of all madam yours will be a most brilliant career i'm sure i'm looking forward to its rewards professor howard goodbye and didn't we have a i had a poorly timed uh three stooges joke there professor howard howard fine and howard howard fine and howard and what and what did i say stein (laughs) stein yeah i think (laughs) which was the fire which was the which was linked us back to Firestorm. So, which Shag will like that if he's listening? Hi, Shag. Well, if he's anyway, not listening, he just missed not, out big didn't time. Everybody's going, who the heck is Shag? But you should know who he is. Go to the Firestorm podcast. The irredeemable Shag. Fire Wire, Fire and Water podcast. Also, insert on- Doctor Hugh music here. <laughs> anyway, back to our story. Enough plugging. Um, Adam Clayton is working on a machine that takes vibrolite and it's sound converted to light and light transmitting vibrating particles to living matter. Matter? Wow, that's a new word. So he decides that he can use this machine to make himself move fast enough that he will be invisible to the human eye and he will be the invisible man. So, like any good scientist does, he decides to turn it upon himself to test it, test it out. And, voila! Oddly enough, it works. Hey, no horrible side effects or anything. Uh, in a story. Uh, not quite. So, he begins to run around and move at the speed of light. We see some really nice artwork to where he's uh, moving past everyone like they're standing still. And he's just a, just a white blur in, in the, um, uh, on the page. And he's zipping through traffic, and now we catch back up to the opening scene to where the three crooks were coming out of the bank, and he takes the money and runs. And uh, the the uh, three crooks are caught by the police, and he's standing there with the big bag of money, and he's deciding what he wants to do with it, and he finally decides, well... You know, he's got the moral dilemma, should I just, you know, use my power for good when it works, should I just make my life easier? Well, he decides, I'll turn it in and gain my fame that way, and, and that's how, you know, I'll do the right thing. But he still has an ulterior motive for his own gain. Um, he brings the uh, the payroll to, to the police and uh, says, well, you know, tells them about the Invisible Man, and he's playing it coy, doesn't tell them that it's him. And next we see to where the following over the next few days, he performs a few feats. Uh, we have a really unsafe work workplace where a safe is being held by a frayed rope that decides to snap and fall on local bypassers. Uh, local pedestrians walking underneath it, you know, no safety cones, just, a, just an ocean nightmare. 
So the Invisible Man swoops in and grabs the guy that's about to get crushed by the safe, and everybody's amazed how this guy's just floating in midair, and it, you know, oh, it could be, must be the Invisible Man. And uh, next, the Invisible Man proceeds to put a lot of people out of work by taking the postman's mail and delivering all the mail for him in seconds, and he's starting to gain a reputation of the Invisible Man, and he starts seeing his name in the paper more and more, so he's getting the fame that he wants. Then we see he must have been paid off by some bookies to interfere with the fight with the champ because he goes in and knocks out the champ for no apparent reason. Uh, helps out Habitat for Humanity by building the house when the guys go for lunch, so now they're out of work. And he then decides to pick on some helpless teen, well, some some you know teenagers just having a good time, doing a little joyriding by uh, pulling all the tires off the car while the car is moving. Oh, I'm sure that's safe. Nothing possibly could go wrong there. So he goes back to his his, um, his house, and he's really tired, exhausted from everything he did that day. And he looks up in the mirror, and, oh, no, I'm an old man. And he realizes, of course, I was moving at tremendous speeds, but I was also burning up energy, vast amounts of energy. And now it's too late to undo it all. So... It was too late to regret my foolish desire for riches. It was too late to reach back and use the valuable time I wasted to perfect my formula for mankind's benefit. Yes, that's a job for a younger man, a much wiser young man than I was. So, and of course, the irony is, is that now he's just a slow-moving old man, goes for a little walk out on the street, almost gets plowed over by a truck, and uh, he says, Hey, for Pete's sake, Pop, you know better than to walk so slow in moving traffic. You might have gotten hurt. I'm sorry, I didn't realize, I didn't realize a lot of things. And it was an ironic, of course, we'll let Stephen Lacey decide if, what the definition of ironic is, and somehow fitting into my career as the Invisible Man, who could have weaved in front of a dozen speeding trucks, a selfish man as a careless man, who has lost sight of the values that count, and in turn, loses everything. The end. I end disagree with that. I disagree with that last box, though. Because they make it sound like he was, you know, a selfish guy who was doing bad things. I mean, he wasn't the, doing bad things. For the most part, he was pretty altruistic. And yeah. yet, he got punished for it. Yeah. Yeah, it was very ironic Twilight Zone-ish. I think it's more of, of the oh. hubris thing, is that it was his pride, you know, the pride goeth before the fall, and that, you know... He didn't think things out. He tested it on himself. He didn't, you know, that's what he's saying. You well, know? Yeah. He did yeah. say in the one panel that he was going to reveal himself and reap the profits of fame. Uh, but so, that, I, I didn't think, I don't think that's totally terrible. It's not like he was stealing or, or doing bad yeah. things. But uh, I guess the thing is he was so busy trying to figure out if he could do it, he never bothered to figure out if he should do it. To mm -hmm. paraphrase Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park. There you go. Nice one. But I, I, that's that's the thing that disturbs me about the story, though. Is usually, when they have these cautionary tale type endings, it's somebody who kind of deserves the fate that he brought on himself. Yeah, like, this is like in the right. in the uh, ice monster one. You know, he was a bad guy, and then he got to be taken to be an ice monster love slave. That was <laughs> you know that was his just desserts. This is kind of ambiguous. I mean, he really wasn't. You know, I don't think he really deserved this. And, you know, just because you know, he's an old man now doesn't mean he can't work to perfect it. Yeah. Or somehow reverse it. But it's, yeah. it's almost like, you know, if he had brought a Snickers bar along, he would have been okay. <laughs> Feeling like yourself? <laughs> oh, I feel like Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yeah, he could have done the Jimmy Stewart voice for uh, when he was an old man. He's got a... Sorry. I didn't realize. I didn't realize a lot of things. Those are his battles. I'll have to work on my Jimmy Stewart now for the old man voice. Uh, Save it for uh, the get off my lawn cast. The what? Get off <laughs> my lawn cast. Hosted <laughs> by Scott Gardner. Yeah, you could do uh, Walter Winchell. Walter Brennan. Walter, Walter, Walter Brennan. I do not do Walter Winchell. <laughs> That's right. He was the broadcaster. <laughs> Greetings, Mr. and Mr. Mac on all the ships at sea. That's Walter Winchell, isn't it? I believe that is. 
God, why do I know things from way before my time? I don't know. I, it's because I hang around with you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you best. <laughs> hey, you son of a... <laughs> if I wasn't so much older than you, I would do something about it. <laughs> so we got some nice Kirby art. We got a, of course, we have a wonderfully rendered, meticulous Kirby machine. Um, and this was, I think, well, that's what we were trying to figure out. Was this before the Flash or not? Because when was the Flash? Flash was... 63? No, no, I think it was like 58. Oh, that's right, it was 50. Okay, never mind. Yeah, then this is probably after the Flash. Yeah, with the uh, with the blur effect, with everybody, everybody's... Well, of course, it's a comic panel, so everybody, of course, looks like they're standing still, but they really look like they're standing still with him zipping by everybody. Yeah, you know, like I said, just about everything he did was altruistic, except when he went into the boxing ring and just decided to knock one of the guys out. <laughs> he just what the hell was that about? <laughs> oh! And then, and then as soon as it happens, you know, one guy says, he's going down, sounded like he ran into a wall, but I don't see anything. And then somebody in the aisle says, there's a fourth man in the ring, the invisible man. Couldn't it have been just a guy had a heart attack or a stroke or something? Like, it must be the invisible man. That's the only logical explanation. Well, you know, the guy standing there looking at him, you know, the boxer's like, what the hell's going on? I didn't do that. Yeah, I did. Yeah, I knocked him out. Yeah, yeah I got a really fast punch there. I missed the, uh, I missed the last time we looked at this. When he takes the mailbag from the mailman, I missed a dog standing down there at the bottom. Looking yes. like he's got his ears up. Huh? What the <laughs> heck is it? There's nobody there for me to bite. <laughs> what do I do? And of course, you have the uh, uh, a couple panels after that. We have the guy with the fedora with the press badge stuffed in his hat. Did you stuff your press badge in your hat when you went to uh, Comic Con? I, I kept trying to, except I don't wear a hat. You should just wear like. So I was trying to just stick it into the side of my head. You should wear an '80s headband. <laughs> that'll work. <laughs> that'll that'll go with our Olivia Newton-John discussion from, I think, the last episode. Oh yeah. Good times. <laughs> now I'm gonna go and want to watch this Xanadu. Anyway. How wrong could you go with Olivia Newton-John and ELO? Pretty we, damn wrong, apparently. That was a discussion we had already, so I shouldn't. <laughs> we we're getting very repetitive since we're recording the same episode a second time. Well, right. I guess we're on to uh, your your story for okay. the. Well, apparently that's our our twilight our twilight zone prison is to to keep recording the same podcast forever and ever and <laughs> ever and ever and ever. Eventually, until we get it right, so we're never going <laughs> to stop. That's for damn problem. sure. <laughs> So we had to keep until we could get Scott Gardner here. Our, our fourth story in our giant-sized man-thing, and by our giant-sized man-thing, I mean our giant-sized man-thing, uh, says, and now our grand finale. So they saved this one for the last, and it's Goom, the thing I'm from Planet X. Hi, I'm Goom. I'm Goom. Goom. He's come, um... So part one of Goom, the thing from Planet X, starts off with a splash page, and we have a giant, really, like, kind of a hillbilly-looking alien hick thing. Uh, he's got two, two teeth at the bottom, none at the top. He's got, you know, like, uh, glider wings that go from his wrist to his thighs. He's got a lot of cellulite on his legs. He's got man boobs. And he's probably, judging by that picture, about 50 feet tall. And he's got a dopey look on his face like he's saying, Hey, I'm Goom! And he's chasing two people in the mountains. <clears throat> Excuse me. Didn't we say that he kind of looks like a, like an alien hippopotamus? Yes, because of the two bottom teeth. He definitely has a alien hippopotamus, yes. alien hippopotamus with man boobs look. So then we flash back to the uh, the, store, the beginning of our tale, and we have a scientist who's 
basically, I guess, in a in a uh, library with other scientists, and they're mocking him and laughing him, just to show us that that peer pressure and abuse doesn't just isn't just limited to our high schools. We it also goes in our institutes of higher learning, and uh, they're laughing at him because he believes that there are other planets uh, that are hidden from view based on. Uh, I don't even recall what it was that they were like vibrating on a different plane. So when he finally gets vacation, he decides he's going to show them. He's going to show them all. And he drives up to a mountain range with his wife and finds a uh, an observatory that has all the latest equipment in it and is just luckily uh, abandoned so that he can use it at at will. And and you see them standing in there and it's one of these telescopes that's like, you know, 70 times the the size of a person. And he's looking and looking and then says, you know, he's going to find an unseen planet. And then eventually, after three days, he does. That's some vacation for his wife. Sure. And uh, when he, when, as soon as he does, rather than, you know, tell the world and let them know, hey, I found other planets. This is a huge scientific discovery. Instead, he decides to communicate with that planet before saying anything to anyone. And we see the looming shadow of Goom hearing his message and Goom says I shall follow his radio beam it'll lead me straight to his world there I shall give him his answer in person <laughs> and he uh, rides off in a very creepy looking hawk type spaceship and uh, he's, he's still cackling away to himself about how they're going to meet Goom and that's going to be basically their doom so they're hanging out in the uh, observatory when all of a sudden Goom's spaceship lands and uh, the scientist and his wife come out and a big hick looking Goom comes out and says, I am Goom. So to, then to impress them, he shows them how he can fly. And I don't know why they don't run away while he's flying because he's just flying around cackling like an idiot. And, but then he t- explains to them that he's going to conquer the planet and he's laughing. So they start to run, which is basically our splash page. And he eventually traps them and catches them. And then we go on to Goom Part 2. So he has them trapped and he's still kind of looking at them with his two-tooth grin. And he basically tells them you know, that it's futile. And what he does is he hangs on to Mrs. Scientist and tells Mr. Scientist that he needs to go and tell his fellow scientists that Goom is here, but that he comes in peace and in friendship. Ha ha ha! That's what he tells us. But then he even explains that uh, as soon as they get, as soon as they come, he explains to them right away that he plans to rule mankind. And uh, in order to show his power to our panel of scientists who are, who are designed to totally represent the all of Earth's population, we have an old-looking white guy, and then we have an old-looking white guy with a turban, and then we have an old-looking white guy with, uh, I don't know if it's a monocle or if it's a set of glasses that don't have the eye, the uh, ear pieces on them, and a big beard. So, you know, clearly it's a slice of the entire world right there. And what he does is he shows them his power by taking one of the scientists and de-aging him to the point where he's an infant. And, and I don't, you know, most people I know when you say, oh, if I had life to lead over again, I'd do this, I'd do that. But these people are just horrified by it. They say, it's incredible, monstrous, stop it, we've seen enough. Take me. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure that somebody would. So then he decides to demonstrate his power further and making a face much like Bill's cat must have. He <laughs> concentrates and raises a city into the, into the uh, atmosphere and... Uh, Basically, they all decide to give in, especially when he shows them that he has a force field around him. So our original scientist sneaks off when no one's looking, and he decides to somehow communicate with Goom's planet again. And then our planet, uh, our panel of world scientists find him, and they're basically ready to string him up because they think he's just making things worse. But before they're able to string him up, three more spaceships arrive, and three more goom-like people who are wearing, or goom-like creatures, but who are wearing flowing robes that are very, very impressive in their uh, look, come out. And uh, the people say they're monstrous, even more evil-looking than goom himself. 
but it turns out that these are friendly pe- friendly uh, aliens and that Goom is not really one of them. He's kind of like a a, a villain in, even in their world and they decide to take him back to, his, to their planet much like uh, you would if it was Charlie X or Trelane. And then the people all realized that our scientist was just... He was totally correct in what he did and that they all forgive him. And he tells them that we should never fear to contact other races. Mankind was meant to go forward, to go on facing and solving all problems until eventually we reach our destiny in the stars. And then, interestingly, it says, next issue, beware the son of Goom. So that means Goom found some other creature willing to procreate with him. Oh, was it an Earthman? Oh. What, do you, what, do you, what, do you, what kind of line do you think he he used? Because I'm picturing him coming up and saying, "Hi, I'm Goom." Oh, take me. <laughs> Which you think most women would just, you know, just be willing to 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 go with him right away at that point. And that's the end of our story, and this is you know typical again, early '60s horror comic. Uh, with the ironic ending, and at least this was before the Star Trek episodes that I said. This was originally printed in Tales of Suspense number 15, which I don't know exactly that was. And the art is by Kirby and Dick Ayers, and it does not credit him in the splash page, but I had found somewhere, I don't know if it was Mike's Amazing World, I believe it may have been, uh, that Stanley did write this story. So, I... I just saw something we didn't see last time. Last page, panel all the way at the bottom corner. Is that the first ever photo bomb of that guy's face poking up right there? Let's yeah, that's, that's definitely Danny, Danny DeVito. He does have a little bit of a Danny DeVito look about him. But he's like photo bombing. He's just sitting there. It's just the top of his head right in the corner of the panel. It's not even his whole head. It's just like he just leaned into the frame. Hey, what's going on here? It looks like Kilroy. <laughs> I, was, I was happy to see in the world government that the Shriners were duly represented. Oh, the guy uh, was... <laughs> yeah, with the Fez. Yeah, that was good to know that they're uh, still uh, looking out for us. I personally yeah, we... believe all people should have a Fez. And then we got the guy from the Bavarian village there. We've got a guy with the, uh, you know, with the hat and the little appellettes on the shoulders. Yeah, got Mark all, 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 all tied up. They were, they were so ready to string him up. Kill him. Well, they don't say that, but it's like uh, you ever seen in the Ten Commandments. You know, Moses does this, he does that, he frees them. That you know, but then as soon as they, as soon as the Pharaoh gives something, you know, gives an order, they have to make uh, bricks without straw or whatever it was. But, you know, he's been doing all these things to get them free. And the second that the, the Pharaoh punishes him, they, they, they want to string him up. They want to stone him. Yeah, where's your messiah now, see? A firing squad is almost too good for him. <laughs> yeah. oh. He was a traitor to Earth. I do have to say, I liked, uh, I liked Goom's sweet Condor Man ship. That was pretty, uh, pretty awesome. Condor Man, ah, yes. <laughs> but very different from the ship that the uh, that the Goom elders come in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it must be evil Gooms. They they ride Condor Man style. So the Goom elders, it looks like the Grumpy Cat from the internet. That's what those ships look like. I don't know if you've guys seen Grumpy Cat before. No, I'm not not up on Grumpy Cat. I really like yeah. the uh, the Goom elders costumes you, though. though. Yeah, they got some pretty fly clothes going on there. Medallions think, or what have you. I I think we said last time that you know they've got the voice of the guy from Family Guy. Hey, at least that Earth man. We're not. We, we allow no living creature to be slain. Our rights is opposed to all violence. We're sorry. That, that goom is an outcast. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a sick renegade. It's unfortunate that our first radar beam reached him instead of us. We'll take him off your hands. And I could just, as they drag him off, I could just hear, I can hear Charlie X. No, you promised, you promised. Oh yeah, very much so. Stay, 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 stay. <laughs> or actually, no, yeah, he didn't. Did 
Did he? He didn't give the promise. To, that was Trelane who said you promised, right? Yes, you promised. Oh yeah, that was yeah, Trelane. Yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of Star Trek floating around in these uh, these stories. But these, at least these predate Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. They, you know, they didn't just rip it off. Yeah. It's Gene Roddenberry that ripped it off. <laughs> That's right. Star Trek, That's nothing good. original. There's some definite, uh, definitely funny looking, you know, like the first, I'm Goom. <laughs> on page 53 that that one always kills me big old teeth it's like he's gonna eat them out yeah um, goom is definitely one of the most unique things i've ever seen created and i seem to remember that that goom did appear again in a hulk annual oh yeah hulk really big the well, they, they had a, and a, Hulk, a Hulk annual where I think there were six different monsters from uh, from you know from these old stories that he squares off against. One of which is uh, Groot, who is now in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, that really shut down the room, huh? <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> Sorry, Paul. That's right. We'll just wait. Fine. Hey, you guys got anything else <laughs> beyond the, the girl from Ipanema? I, I, uh, no, I think we're pretty good. Yeah. I think we covered everything we covered before. <laughs> All right. We'll just let it go there then. Join us each and every week for Back to the Bins. <laughs> Bye. Bye. I, I'm no longer Goom. Maybe next next episode we'll cover the son of Goom. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by visiting the Two True Freaks section of www.forumforgeeks.com. Back to the Bins is produced in association with the Two True Freaks podcast, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com and is a registered trademark of DiManzocor of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Back to the Bins is a proud member of both the League of Comic Book Podcasts, which you may find at comicbooknoise.com league, and also the Comics Podcast Network, which you may find at comicspodcasts.com. Take a moment to stop by their respective sites and support their other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.